Uh, Father, we pray that as we come to uh, look at this passage together, you'll continue to speak to us through your word, uh, that you'll give us hearts that are desirous of hearing what you have to say to us. Uh, we pray um, uh, that you give us wills that are willing to obey uh, what you say to us. We pray that your spirit will be uh, uh, working that in our hearts now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I was in my uh, early teenage years, I remember going caroling with a group from our church in Johor Bahru one Christmas. Now, the thing about caroling is, when you go caroling, uh, many homes you go to, you go from one house to another singing Christmas carols, right? not on the same street or anything like that, you know, house of church members lah, right? uh, and you go from one house to another singing Christmas carols, and they give you food at each house, so it's really good. Uh, so you go to one house, you sing, 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 then they give you food. The next house, you sing, 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 they give you food. The next house, you sing. So you actually get quite full uh, through the night. Now, we came to one house which was serving Cha Siu Pao. Right? Now, for those of you who don't know what Cha Siu Pao, Cha Siu Pao is, um, how do I describe? Okay, it's a, um, uh, it's a bun. Okay, Pao, huh? it's a bun. Huh? Okay, thank you. Yeah, someone, who, who wants to help me with this? Someone? Barbecue steam bun, okay, steam pork, huh? Okay, so inside it's a steam bun, okay, it's white color, uh, and inside, well, it's a steam one now, the baked one's different, but never mind about that one, alright, inside there is barbecue pork, a sweet barbecue pork, and it's really nice, okay? So, we came to this house that was serving chasu pao, and the chasu pao were passed around, but one of the carolers didn't eat, and the rest of us asked her why. And she explained that she'd been reading her Bible and she came across a passage where God tells his people not to eat pork. And so she didn't want to eat. And I said to her, oh, no, no, that's only Old Testament, not New Testament, no such restrictions, you can eat. And the rest of the people going, yeah, 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 I can eat, like, go on, go on, eat, like, eat, like, eat. Right? And we kept on encouraging her to eat, 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 oh, it's okay, you're allowed to eat, don't worry, you can eat. And then finally she ate some chasipa. And we rejoiced in the fact that she learned something from the caroling that we had delivered our sister from her misunderstanding of the Bible, and we went on our merry way to the next house. Did we do the right thing? Well, as we've looked through the book of Romans, you'll have noticed that the Jew-Gentile distinction, the Jew-Gentile issue, is something that is a big one in Paul's mind. And when he spoke about the gospel, in the very key verse, in chapter 1, verse 18, he said, It is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Greek, or the Gentile. When he went on to talk about the justice of God, the fact that we're all sinners, he, he goes to great pains to show that, that, that the Gentiles are sinners, and that the Jews are sinners. And that God's justice is, is without favoritism towards Jew and Gentile. And to show that, chapter 3, verse 9, in the end, that both Jew and Gentile are under sin. And then when he talks about justification by faith, the fact that we are put right with God by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone, he purposely says in chapter 3, verse 20, 30, that both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, that is the Jew and the Gentile, the non-Jew, will be justified by faith. And then this whole Jew-Gentile thing goes in the background a bit for chapters 4 to 8, but then it's right in the foreground again in chapters 9 to 11, isn't it? Which deal with the question of why so many Jews don't believe. 
And then in chapter 12, we're called upon to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God in, in light of his mercies to us. We're called to serve each other in the body of Christ, to love and forgive each other. In chapter 13, to submit to authorities, to live lives which are holy. Once again, the Jew-Gentile issues in the background, though they're just below the surface. And then we come to chapter 14 and 15. Wow, back to the fall again. In chapter 15, Paul's going to talk about his ministry to the Gentiles in particular. But in this passage, Paul continues to explain what it means to live as a living sacrifice in light of God's mercies. And we see that involves, we will see it involves sacrificing our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And he does this by showing an area of tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the Roman church. Which helps you understand why all this time he's been thinking about Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile. Because there's a problem now. And a little bit of historical background might help us to understand this problem. The church in Rome was probably founded by Jewish Christians who were converted in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And so it was probably a predominantly Jewish church at first. In fact, it's probably got connections with the synagogue. In AD 49, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. The Roman historian Suetonius said that this was because, and I quote, they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus. So it seems it's probably that the Jewish Christians and the other Jews are having big disputes about Christ. And in the end, the Romans get fed up and kick them all out. And when the Jews are kicked out, then who is left? Well, the minority in the church is left, who are the Gentiles. And you can guess this minority grew and grew and took the church in a Gentile direction. It becomes a Gentilish church. And then when the Jew, when the, you know, the exiles are over, they, they come, they're allowed to come back into Rome and they come back to church and, oh, you know, it's a bit different church than when we left, isn't it? Uh, the church is probably quite more mixed now. Might probably actually have a Gentile majority. And so there's probably some tension. Because the Jews, all the Jews, they were different. They, they found it hard to give up some of their Jewish practices, like abstaining from certain foods and observing certain days. Because those were things God had commanded in the Old Testament. And they'd been doing it since they were young. And just because they believed who the Messiah was, they didn't necessarily mean that they, that they stopped doing all their customs. And the Gentiles would have looked at them a little bit strangely because they're following all this Old Testament law which is fulfilled in Christ. And, and the Jews are continuing to practicing these Jewish things, finding it hard to fit back into our Gentile church. And, oh, like the girl we were currently with, they're probably under subtle or not so subtle pressure from the Gentiles to conform. And so you can see there could be problems. And as we look at how Paul tells the Jews and the Gentiles to work out these problems, we get some pointers as to how to sort our issues when Christians disagree. But, from the start, we need to be clear about what we are dealing with and what we are not dealing with in Romans 14. So I want us to note three careful caveats before we go around willy-nilly applying Romans 14 uh, to all the different issues of, uh, of dispute. Right. The first thing, first of all, 
going to say, as we look at this, we will discover that we are not dealing with a gospel issue. We are not dealing with a gospel issue. If the Jewish Christians had been saying, you have to do all these things in order to be saved, Paul would have opposed them very, very hard. Oh, by the way, don't wait for any more slides, alright? There's no more. Alright, this is it. Okay? So don't wait for more to come up before you write your notes. Yeah, you're right now, huh? Okay. If the Jewish Christians had thought they, they've got to do these things in order to be saved, Paul would have opposed them. You remember how he opposed the, the, uh, the false teachers in Galatia? Right? The Galatian, the false teachers come along and say, in order to be saved, it's not just trusting in Christ, but you have to be circumcised as well. And Paul wallops them. Okay? This is terrible. He doesn't mince his words when he speaks against them. Why? Because the gospel is at stake. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. No one saying that you have to abstain from me to observe Satan days in order to be saved. They're saying it's a matter of pleasing God who has already saved you. It's not a gospel issue. Secondly, we're not even dealing with a genuine godliness issue in terms of a command from God in this area. The Jewish guys thought that this was a godliness issue, but actually it wasn't. Because Jesus had declared all foods clean. And the Apostle Paul, the appointed representative of Jesus to the Gentiles, had said, there is freedom here. In fact, if you go down to verse 14, Paul actually says, actually we know there is nothing unclean in and of itself. You're actually allowed to eat, want to eat, don't eat, whatever. No big deal. And so the gospel and the apostolic witness in the scriptures actually say this is an area of freedom. If you come to an issue where the New Testament speaks and says you have to be like this, you should do this or shouldn't do this, then it's not an area of freedom. That is a genuine godliness issue, different from this one. You see that? Thirdly, the issues that these Jewish guys wrongly thought were godliness issues are actually issues that came out from their background in Judaism. These were things that God actually commanded in the Old Testament, but they didn't really apply now because they were fulfilled in Christ. It just, it, they were so used to obeying these commands from God, they just couldn't imagine going against them when they became Christians, even when they were allowed to. Gentile Christians, of course, never had the laws before, had no problems with it. So there's not many situations today which are exactly parallel to that. So we need to be very careful not to woodenly over-apply this passage to situations that are different. However, there are principles that we can draw from this passage which we can use in many situations, and we will look at them later. So once again, the passage is dealing with the areas which the Bible gives you freedom in Christ, because he's fulfilled the Old Testament, but not all Christians get it. The ones who understand it all, or understand they've got the freedom, in the passage, Paul calls them the strong. It doesn't mean they're strong in every sense of the word. Okay, they may not be physically strong. They may not be emotionally strong. They, might be strong in, in, they may not be strong even in godliness. But in this particular area, that is, they've understood the freedom they have in Christ. The people who haven't quite got it yet, 
they were of tender conscience about these things. They were called the weak in faith. Not that they were weak in saving faith. They trust the Lord Jesus to save them, then they are saved. That's all the faith they need. But they are weak in the sense that they can't shake off all these old, tes- old Jewish practices, of which there's nothing intrinsically wrong with them, but they're just not necessary anymore since the coming of Christ. Nothing intrinsically wrong with them, and God himself gave them. They weren't relying on them for salvation. They just, they just wanted to live a godly life in Christ. They just want to please God. They want to adorn anything that, that displeases God. And so they're keeping some of these old Jewish traditions and commandments. So, with those caveats in mind, let's have a careful look at the passage. Now, Paul opens the passage by speaking to the strong. Chapter 14, verse 1, he speaks to the strong and he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Welcome the weaker brother. Receive him. Accept him. Have genuine fellowship with him. Consider him your, your partner in the gospel, your friend, your, 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 your fellow slave in Christ. Your... Accept him. And not just so you can quarrel with him. Not just so that you can you can teach him or help him grow. No, not so that you can't. What? Paul later does that. Doesn't mean you can't give him your opinion. Paul does that. It doesn't mean you're not actually right about this. Actually, guys, the strong guys, you're you are. You're the strong ones. You've got the apostle on your side. Truth be known, you've got Jesus on your side. But but that's not the point. Accept the weaker one as a fellow servant of Christ. Verse 2. One person believes, and here's the example huh, of a strong and a weak. Okay, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. See, the weak person doesn't eat meat. That's, that's, that's why he's weak, you see. Okay, seriously. Huh? He probably only eats vegetables because why? Because in the pagan society, it's hard to get meat that is that is fitting with the Jewish laws of purity, right? Uh, and so, say we just eat vegetables, lots. like some of our Muslim friends, they go to a place where there's no halal meat, then the more serious ones will just eat vegetables. So there are Christians in Rome who are happy to eat anything, and there's someone who only eats vegetables. Now, how do they view each other? The strong one. Gentile ones, mostly Gentiles, but the strong ones probably look down on the weak ones. Why oh, yeah, are these guys so unspiritual? Caught up with all this nonsense about what you can eat, you can't eat, all that Jewish stuff they can't let go of. Haven't really understood all the implications of the gospel. Haven't really understood the freedom Christ gives us from the law of Moses. Stupid Jews. And the weak ones? They're condemning the strong. Look at those guys. Eat whatever they like. No regard for God's laws. You know, yes, okay, now they're trusting in Christ for salvation. But God told Moses about these laws for a reason. These guys are just ignoring it. We've got all these years of history, tradition, and all these things. These guys just forget about it. And if they were really trusting in Christ, then surely they would show that by their obedience, isn't it? But just look at them. Right? Just wonder, you know, they really saved Well, the Spirit through Paul speaks to both sides. Verse 3. Let not the one who eats 
despise the one who abstains. Don't treat those weak ones with contempt. Don't despise them. Don't look down on them. Don't ridicule them. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed them. God has welcomed them. God has received them in Christ. Don't you go and condemn them. For, verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The meat eater, God is able to hold him up. God will keep him. God will save him on the last day. Don't pass judgment on him. That's because he eats meat. Okay, so you've got the meat and vegetables one. Here's another example, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another. That's probably the Sabbath and some Jewish festivals. Again, these Jews probably observed them when they were Jews and now they're Christians, they keep on doing it. And after all, Jesus did. So why shouldn't we? On the other hand, second half of verse 5, while another esteems all days alike. They don't care about the Jewish Sabbaths and festivals because they're all fulfilled in Christ. They don't have to worry about them. It's just ridiculous these other guys are trying to put these Jewish customs in. so unnecessary. And what does the Apostle say? Verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Hey, that's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, okay, take a vote and the whole church has to abide by it exactly the same. He didn't say, okay, get the pastors, the elders together and decide and everybody must follow. He doesn't even say, which actually he could, because he's the apostle, everyone just do what I say. No. This is not something that affects the church as a whole. It's something that everybody must make up their own mind and be convinced of in their own position. And so he says, I want everyone to be convinced in their own mind. So friends, having a diversity of opinions about an issue in the church is okay. It's okay to have different opinions among us on some things. We do not have to agree on everything to be united in the gospel. And on any one issue on which we disagree, some of us will be right and some of us will be wrong. But it's okay. However, just because it's okay doesn't mean we can be lazy. Doesn't mean, oh yeah, doesn't matter lah, either way. No, we have to work it out. Each has to work it out. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. Be certain about your position and act on it to the glory of God. Verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see, the one who observes, the Christian who observes particular days, he does it who for who? For God. The other Christian who eats the chasu pao, he does it with thanksgiving to God. Thank you for the yummy pork. The one who eats vegetables purposely, only eats vegetables. Why is he doing it? He's doing it because he wants to honor God. 
That is the attitude that these Christians have because that is the attitude all Christians are to have. Whatever you do, whatever position you take on these things, why are you doing it? Because you are convinced that it's going to honor and please God because it is God whom you're living for, aren't you? Verse 7. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to Jesus. We are prepared to die for Jesus. And we will live for Him as well. And so, everything, everything we do is to serve Him. Whether it's eating or abstaining, whether it's observing particular days or proclaiming our freedom from that, whether it's at work or at home, at the shopping mall, at church... We do it for our Master, the Lord. We live for Jesus, we die for Jesus. And we do it because He died and rose again for us. Verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the living and the dead. The fact that Jesus died and rose again means that He is Lord, means that we belong to Him, we are His. And so your sister who observes that silly festival belongs to Jesus, not to you. Your brother who eats those pork chops belongs to Jesus, not to you. And everything they are doing, they are doing it for Jesus. And so Paul asked the weak Christian in verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why? He's doing it for Jesus. Why doubt his commitment to Christ if he eats unclean food? Or the next part of the verse where he's speaking to the strong ones. Or you, why do you despise your brother? Why, why do you look down on the one who observes festival and restraints from me? Why do you say, oh, I'm a better Christian than him because I have the freedom in Christ from all these things? You may not be. I'm sure there are many brothers and sisters we can look at and say, oh, look, they haven't understood the Bible about that issue, have they? But they are actually more godly than us. Because they love Jesus. They are seeking to obey Him in what they do understand. They are further along in their learning of obedience through suffering. Mustn't have the arrogance of knowledge. And the weak ones. Don't say, Oh, because those guys don't follow the rules, they're not good Christians. And the strong ones don't say, We're better than the weak ones because we're not bound. No, those decisions are not ours to make. From the end of verse 10. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. (coughs) God is a judge, friends. Not us. And so when we look down on other Christ-serving people who don't share our same convictions on secondary matters and we think that we are better or more spiritual than they are, or we condemn them because of those convictions, we are putting ourselves in God's place as judge. And so Paul says in verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather 
decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Have firm convictions. He says, be convinced in your own mind. Have firm convictions. But don't pass judgment on one another to think that you are better or more spiritual than the other because you understand those things. Now verse 13 is a pivot verse in the argument uh, because the first half of the verse summarizes what Paul has just said and the second half summarizes what he's about to say. Oh, let's listen to the bell. Okay, so verse 13, pivot verse. First half summarizes what he said already. Second half, what he's about to say. Uh, what they have in common is the word judge, which you see in English in the first half. Let us not pass judgment. Let us not judge each other any longer. And in the second half, you don't see it because it has been correctly translated decide in the second half because uh, it's a pun, you see. So literally, it's not... Let us not judge one another, but rather judge or decide this, not to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the path of the brother. Instead of thinking judgmentally about your brother, try to think how you can not be a trap or a stumbling block to him. Don't stumble your brother. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul gives an example in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul knows that Jesus declared all foods clean. He knows he can eat pork, he can eat shellfish, he can eat crab, he can eat any food. It's okay. He's not under the law of Moses. He's free. There's nothing that's intrinsically unclean. If it's food, if you're thankful to God for it, God is fine with you eating it. There's no harm to you spiritually. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. But, verse 14, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. That's interesting, isn't it? If the weaker Christian considers something unclean, then to him it is unclean. If he believes it to be unclean, then it is unclean for him. But Paul, you just said it's not unclean. Yes, it's not unclean in itself, but, but it's unclean for him. Why is it unclean for him? It's because he thinks it's unclean. Is it actually unclean? No. But in his mind it's unclean. And what happens when the strong Christian comes along and eats it and pressures him to do the same? He becomes what verse 15 calls grieved. And that's not just being made sad or annoyed at the strong one, because in the second half of verse 15 we see it can actually destroy him. It becomes what verse 13 called a stumbling block or a hindrance. It actually stops him from following Jesus. Now, why would the fact that someone eats pork stop the weak Christian from following Jesus? It's because the weak guy is tempted to join him. See, the strong guy looks down on the weak guy for not eating pork. Thinks he's unspiritual. Makes little jokes about him. Pressures him by his behavior. Brings you up for community dinner. And in the end, the weak guy caves in. In his mind, he still thinks God doesn't want him to eat this. 
But he eats it anyway due to pressure from the stronger. And you know what? That's sin. Go down to verse 23. Let's just go ahead a little bit just to, just to show you that. In verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, if, if I'm convinced that God doesn't want me to do it, and I do it anyway because you pressure me to, then in my mind I am choosing you over God. Even though there's nothing actually wrong with what I do in and of itself. If I think God doesn't want me to do it, and I do it anyway, then my attitude to God is wrong, isn't it? That is sin. And if I'm influenced to have a wrong attitude to God about this matter, that will lead me astray because I'll end up having that same attitude to God in, in other matters, and other matters, and other matters, until in the end I don't care what God thinks about what I do, and I'm spiritually ruined. And that is the danger. And so Paul says in verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You see, if I am your weaker brother, your love for me must be more important than your freedom to eat chasupa. It's good that you've got freedom in Christ. It's good that you don't have to obey the law of Moses. But if that freedom drags people down, leads them away from Christ, then... In the end, exercising your freedom is not loving. And the accidental result of what you're doing is there's a bad backlash. The very theological point that you hold to will be opposed and blasphemed. People will say bad things about your freedom in Christ. So, so don't approach it that way. Don't, verse 16, let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Because your freedom in Christ is not really about being able to eat pork. Christ didn't just die so you could have chasupa. Christ died to rose again to, to save you, to make you holy. Verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so living in the kingdom, living with Christ as your king, that is characterized by what? By godly behavior. It is characterized by the Holy Spirit leading us to holy and righteous lives. It is characterized by the Holy Spirit leading us people to go out of the way to take, to make, to take selfless actions to live in harmony with each other. It is characterized by the Holy Spirit giving God's people the joy of being God's people together, accepting each other despite differences. And so the Spirit says in verse 18, Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. That's how you really serve Christ. Not primarily by either eating or abstaining, not by observing days or ignoring days. It's by, it's by loving each other. That's what God wants. And actually, that's what people will notice as well. And when you do it that way, the truth will not be blasphemed because of you. And so Paul says in verse 19, So then let us pursue what that makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The thing to work for in the congregation is peace and harmony and unity. To build God's people up, not to cause them to fall. That is your priority. So verse 20 to 22, are specific instructions to the strong about doing this. 
Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Wouldn't it be wrong to divide the church or cause people to stumble so that you can eat chasubah? Once again, nothing wrong with chasubah. What is wrong is causing your brother to stumble. Verse 20 continues, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I am free to eat pork. I am free to drink wine. Not free to get drunk with wine, but free to drink wine. But I am not free to do spiritual harm to my brother. And if anything I do, even if I'm free to do it, causes spiritual harm to my brother, then I should not do it. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or anything that will cause your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, verse 22, keep between yourself and God. Don't pressure your brother to be the same as you. As far as you go, verse 22 continues, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. If you can eat chasupah with a clear conscience, good for you! Blessed are you! But for those who can't, those who think it's wrong, for those, if eating it cannot be done with thanksgiving to God for the glory of God, then, then they shouldn't eat. Verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And if your brother shouldn't eat, then you should support him in his not eating until such time as he comes to understand the implications of the gospel more clearly and has his own conviction that he can eat. And until such time, support him in his not eating rather than making him eat. Now, in this kind of case, the onus is on the strong to bear with the weak, isn't it? Until the weak people come to understand and believe the truth of the freedom that we have in Christ, their conscience will be bound. And if those people who are strong aren't patient with them, who ins- if they insist on their own way, if they insist that the weak comply with their standards, then one of two things will happen. Either the weak will comply, but not because they are convinced, or they will fight, and the church will be split. Either way, that is a disaster. If I am strong, I can refrain from Chasupah for the sake of my brother, but he cannot eat Chasupah for the sake of me. The very best he can do is what Paul said and put up with me eating it. But if we are going to eat together, then the strong one must bend for the sake of the weak one. And so the ones who are actually right end up having to limit their own freedom for the ones who have got it wrong. Isn't that strange? Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. 
just because you're right doesn't mean that you push you have your own way. Isn't that just weird? Isn't that just going against natural thinking? Isn't it something that's just opposite from the way of the world? Yet that is the way of love. That is the way Christ taught us to act. We do it because that is what Christ did for us. 15 verse 3. Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The quote is from Psalm 69. It's a psalm of David. David is crying to God for help. He is being reproached by those who reproach God. He is being criticized by God's critics. It was a terrible experience. And that was the experience of Jesus as well. As he hung on the cross being punished for our sins, he was reproached by those who reproached God. He was criticized, he was mocked, he was ridiculed by God's enemies. And if he was just looking to please himself, there is no way he would have put himself in that situation. But he was there to please the Father. He was there to serve us, his people. He sacrificed his rights for our sake. And when we see how Jesus sacrificed his rights in dying for us on the cross, then we are motivated to love our brothers and sisters as well, to sacrifice our rights for their sake. And so Paul says in verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. God gives us endurance and encouragement through the Scriptures to do the right thing. And when the scriptures reflect the gospel to us, when they tell us about the death that Jesus suffered for us, they they encourage us to be willing to please our weaker brothers and sisters, even at our own expense. And they give us hope that to do that is not stupid. Because God vindicated his son and brought him from play dead. So sacrificing your rights for the sake of others is not in the end a foolish thing. But it is hard. And we need God to be working in us to enable us to live this way. And so Paul prays for them in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement, the God who works through the scriptures in this way, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays here for harmony, because that comes from God. He prays for unity and harmony in the congregation of God's people. That is the thing that he prays that God would grant them. But even that is not the ultimate goal. The higher goal than that is, verse 6, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of God is the ultimate goal. That is the ultimate goal for everything we do, isn't it, really? God is glorified when his people are united, praising him with one voice. God is honored when his people are living in harmony. God is honored when his people are able to to be united with each other in their service of him. And so the conclusion in verse 7, which summarizes it all, brings us back to the opening verses, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another, accept one another, as Christ has welcomed you 
for the glory of God. There's the instruction. Accept one another. Welcome one another. The motivation. Christ has welcomed you. The goal. The glory of God. So, how do we apply this passage in practice? Because not many Jews among us who've kind of like continued the Jewish traditions until now don't see that here. So how do you apply this passage? Well, again, you've got to do it with great care. Because remember, not all issues that we have disagreements on are similar to this one, isn't it? But this is very specific. This is an area where the apostolic teaching grants freedom and the strong ones, the ones who understand the Bible, they know it. And it's an area where the weak ones, even though they are weak, they're not making, they're not making it a gospel issue. So, first of all, once again, you cannot apply to people who preach a different gospel. To teach salvation by works, or to teach that Christ didn't really rise from the dead, or something like that. It's not about this at all. Alright? These people are false teachers who distort the gospel, who by their teaching are sending people to hell. They must be vigorously opposed and not accepted. And, in the area where the Bible has clearly spoken about particular matters, then again, this is not one of those things. Some people try to use this passage, for example, to argue that we should tolerate gay sex among God's people. Let each person be convinced in his own mind on this matter and accept each other whatever your conclusions. No, no, no. Gay sex is not an area of freedom. Because the New Testament speaks clearly about it. This passage is not to do with anything that the New Testament will not allow us to do. This passage is not about anything that Jesus or an apostle say, this is sin. I do not permit this. Do not do that. Stay away from this. Get rid of that. This is not about those things. These are things that the New Testament, well, doesn't care either way about. They are not prohibited. They are allowed. If you want to be really, really exact, these are the things that God once told people in the Old Covenant to do are now fulfilled in Christ and keeping them in no way distorts the Gospel or denies the Gospel. But So what kind of examples today fit this category exactly? Probably not many. Maybe the Chasiu Pao during that caroling example from the beginning is probably a close one. Alright, and did we do the right thing there? No, not really, did we? Okay, may God forgive us. Another example would probably be some of the Seventh-day Adventists, I think. Seventh-day Adventists, a lot of food laws, Sabbath laws they observe. Now, some of them think that Christians who don't observe them are unsaved. When they say that, then they're making it a gospel issue. And we must oppose them strongly. Because they're making religious observance into a prerequisite for salvation rather than faith in Christ. They are adding to the gospel and therefore nullifying it. 
But some Seventh-day Adventists don't make it into a gospel issue. I had a Seventh-day Adventist in my cell group uh, when I was at university. She believed in salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. She never thought you have to obey these laws in order to be saved. She just believed it was God's will that we should do them. Just observing them as part of being godly, like we would say abstaining from drunkenness and obeying the law of the land is part of being godly. And so in the gratitude to the God who saved her, Rebecca would abstain from certain foods and keep the Sabbath. She was genuinely the weaker sister, wasn't she? And so we never tried to get her to eat pork or shellfish or to work on Saturday. That, that would have been wrong for her to do. We'd accept her as a, a sister in Christ, a co-heir of the kingdom, a partner of the gospel, because that's what she was even though she didn't realize the freedom we have in Christ, even though she hadn't seen really that actually all foods are clean, and well, it didn't matter really, because the kingdom is not about eating and drinking, but about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There are many other areas which are not exactly the same, but you know the way we so therefore we we, we can't put it in that same kind of um, gridla and come up with the same kind of answers. But there are principles we can draw on this passage that we can apply to any situation. Now here's a few principles. First of all, be convinced in your own mind. Search the scriptures, work it out as best you can, and make sure whatever you do. You work out how whatever view, including your own, relates to the gospel. Test and see if the gospel is compromised by any of your views. And if it is, take out your swords and fight. Okay, that's not an area of freedom. Get back to the Bible and see what it's saying. Is there a command from God here? If there is really a command from God, then that's not an area of freedom. And let me tell you, we are in a much better position than the weak brother in the passage because we have access to the whole Bible, all the apostolic teaching there. We can see very easily what is and what isn't. Pray that God's Spirit will guard your heart. You know, you know these guys, this might have been the very first apostolic letter they get. Of course they're weak. You've got much less excuse left. Pray that God's Spirit will guard your hearts from the bias of reading what you want to find there rather than listening to what God is really saying. Be willing to discuss it in the community of God's people with other people who are doing the same thing or trying to work it out. You don't have to do it by yourself. Actually, we can kind of work out what the areas of freedom are and what the, the things that God commands in Scripture, generally speaking. Secondly, love your brothers and sisters in Christ even if they come up with different conclusions from you uh, on these freedom areas. Don't do them any spiritual harm. Yes, you hope they will mature and grow up and understand things properly. Yes, teach them the gospel and its implications so that they will be able to do that. 
But don't make them go against what they genuinely believe God wants them to do. Even if you already know from the Scriptures is an area of freedom. Let them work it out themselves first. You can help them to work it out. But don't impose on them. You've got to do it. They've got to be convinced. Now, of course, if they're doing something that's not in an area of freedom, they're doing something that's wrong, that's a different thing, isn't it? Because then they are sinning against God, and you have to warn them against that. But if you know it's an area of freedom, and they don't, then don't make them comply with your freedom. Thirdly, be prepared to give up your rights for the sake of the spiritual welfare of others. Be prepared to give up your rights for the sake of the spiritual welfare of others. See, in the passage, the strong were to bend for the weak, even though they were right. And there are all kinds of situations where we are to be called to, 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 to willingly give up our rights for the sake of others. Maybe frustrating, when you think about it in a human kind of way. But remember that Christ did it for you. Be motivated by the gospel. Serve God's people, not yourself. Be prepared to give up your rights for the spiritual welfare of others. And fourthly, accept one another. Don't let disputes about non-gospel issues and non-issues of God's command divide the church. I'm not saying have unity at any cost. The gospel is worth fighting for. Righteousness is worth fighting for. But there are things that are not worth dividing over, isn't there? Don't split the church over food and drink. Or anything else as trivial as that. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. But about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Live at peace with one another, even if it means sacrificing your rights, your convenience, your pride, whatever. Gospel unity in the church is more important than that. And do it for the glory of God. Because in the end, everything you do, whether you live or you die, you do it for Jesus. Now, there's lots of examples you can give in terms of how it works out in practice. Lots of examples of areas of freedom where we can, that we can go. I mean, trivial ones like, you know, whether you play drums or you play organ in church. Alright. Or whether you sing with your hands up or sing with your hands down. Okay. Some people, wow, I'm more spiritual because I put my hands up. Some people, Oh yeah, this person so unspiritual because they put their hands up, you know, distracting me from... Huh? No, like, except one another. What, 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 who cares? Or, how often you have communion? Every week? Or four times a year? Or, or whether you baptize infants or not? Or, whether you want to follow the church calendar? Or don't follow the church calendar? Or, all kinds. Now, let me give us one to think about. Uh, this is the classic one. Huh? Uh, alcohol. Some Christians believe you shouldn't drink alcohol at all. 
and other Christians say you can. Now, in the Bible, it's an area of freedom, isn't it? Now, alcohol is not forbidden, it is a gift from God. And those who say that wine in the Bible is actually grape juice really need to explain why then Paul warns us not to get drunk on grape juice. But we are warned against drunkenness. If I coax my brother to drink alcohol, when he thinks he ought not to drink, even though actually he can, I am causing him to stumble. And this passage tells me I mustn't do that. But we can go further than that, using the principles of the passage. Don't actually parallel the passage itself. The principle of not stumbling my brother means that there may be times when yeah, he knows that we've got freedom to drink, but he's also the kind of guy who cannot stop at one drink or two. But once he starts, he'll take another one and another one and another one and another one and end up drunk. Then what should I do? Well, when I'm with him, I must drink Coke, isn't it? Or for me, I must drink Coke lightly. Right? And when as a community we have a party, then we make it dry. Or at least we don't bring enough that anyone can get drunk. Now, why should his weakness curtail our enjoyment of alcohol in moderation? That's because we love him. Because we are prepared to give up our rights for the sake of his godliness. Because Jesus loved us and gave up his rights for our sake. Because there are things that are far, far, far more important at stake than my enjoyment. Because I cannot drink to the glory of God if my drinking causes my brother to stumble and fall. So, brothers and sisters, how do we handle our differences in the areas of freedom? Be convinced in your own mind? Love and accept your brothers and sisters who differ from you? Seek their good, even at the expense of your freedom? Do it because Jesus died for you and do it for the glory of God. Let's pray.